Hi, I'm Josephine Hughes. I'm the mother of two transgender daughters who came out in their teens and early 20s. I told my own stories in series one of Gloriously Unready. And in season two, I'm finding out more about transgender people's experiences. Because as I adapted to having transgender daughters, it helped me a lot to get to know transgender people. In this series, I ask, what's it like to come out as transgender to a world that is not always ready for you? And how can you ever be ready to tell the people that you love that you're not the person they think you are? Today's guest is Joanne Lockwood, a trans woman who came out later in life. For Jo, this presented the challenge of telling her adult children, working through her identity with her wife, and navigating changing relationships with friends and work colleagues. Jo, I'll let you introduce yourself because I think um, it'd be really lovely if people were to hear from you. Thank you, Jo. Um, my name is Joanne Lockwood. My pronouns are she and her. Ooh, what do you want to know about me? I'm 58 years old. Uh, I'm married to my beautiful wife, Marie, and we've been married for 30, ooh, 30, ooh, 37 years this year. Could get that right, you might get wow. into trouble. Yeah, 36, 36, sorry, 36 this year. Been together for 38. So, yeah, we've got two wonderful children. Our daughter's uh, Charlie, she's uh, 31. Our son is uh, 28, yeah, 28 now. Mm -hmm. uh, both both fantastic. I gender transitioned you, you never, it's never exact, an exact date, but 1st of March 2017 is the date I often use. It sticks in my mind because it's the day after I sold my business, oh, my wow. IT company. Wow. And, and that was the, the, the last link in the chain that was holding me back. So, yeah, I mean, in reality, it was a sliding process from probably the July 2016 onwards. I, I think I did my change of name deed the 25th of July 2017. So, as I say, most trans people, there's no one day I transitioned today. No. It's kind of a an evolving process. But I was in IT. I was in electronics. I joined the REF when I left school, decided it wasn't for me. I uh, got into computing and ran a computer company based in Portsmouth, normally near Portsmouth for the best part of 20 odd years. And I got to my late 40s and... Uh, I, if I describe it, it was past my sell-by date. I was going a bit mouldy. You get this conveyor belt of life with pressures, expectations. And I just whacked the stop button one day. I said, no, no, hang on a minute. I'm really not enjoying my life, my career, my gender. I, I need to change it. In fact, the only thing I don't want to change is my family. That was my red line there, yeah, protect my family. But yeah. everything else, everything else is quite uh, up for grabs. And uh, so that was six years ago. I started a business, uh, an EDI consultancy practice so I, I help businesses become more inclusive is probably a good word you know I, I i work on inclusion belonging positive people solutions and i also do a bit of trans awareness and lgbt awareness as well into businesses and uh, so i do fireside chats i've i've traveled all over the world and mm -hmm. i was only pinching myself i was sitting on a train last night coming back from manchester almost reflective disbelief where i was seven years ago poor mental health frustrated my life heading to a place I didn't want to be and then back go, wow, how did I get here? It's, wow. it's like a transformational change. It's like incredible, yeah. I think that's so interesting to hear because so often, you know, 
transgender people are sort of portrayed as, you know, these sad people with their dysphoria and, you know, we should feel sorry for them. But that's not what you're saying at all, is it? <laughs> no, but I, I'd be the first to say that I'm privileged. Yeah. I, I, I recognise the privilege I have. I'm white. I speak English as a first language. I'm re relatively eloquent in my, my accent, the way mm -hmm. I speak. People said I'm articulate. Uh, I have a level of intelligence. I've got a stable family. I've got a home I live in. Mm -hmm. Financially, relatively financially secure. So I, I have a lot of privilege. And I mm -hmm. guess once you get to your, your 50s, you back in the 80s or 90s, we called it bounce back ability, didn't we? That was kind of like the buzzword. A bit like if you remember the weebles, they keep wobbling, but they fall down. Yeah. So I, I've, I've got some resilience and some um, robustness of personality. So, but I, I recognize that my mental health today is robust. Yeah. I went through a phase, let's say five, six years ago, six, seven years ago, where it was a bit mushy, a bit dodgy. But I managed to bootstrap my way out of it, just pull myself out. I do live a privileged in a privileged world where not everybody has this luxury. And I know that many people are kind of caught in this vortex of, of transitioning or not transitioning. The societal pressure, the media is daunting. Lack of access to healthcare. World. As well, yeah. it's a big thing, isn't it? There was oh, yeah. people I mean, waiting for ages. Yeah, I, I, I was privileged. I, I got involved with Gender GP before they were a, a flagged as a a, yeah, a problem, a menace to society, or whatever mm. the GMC accused them of. I was getting hormones through them. I have a fantastic GP, so I was able to set up a, ch a shared care agreement with my GP. He referred me to the GIC quite quickly. I had one to one sessions with him. I wouldn't say counselling as such, but mentoring sessions where he was immensely supportive of me and understanding he was one of the first people that ever validated me changed my name at the surgery okay so i've had a from a gp primary care perspective i've had a, a fantastic experience and mm. so I, when i actually went to the gic i got my first appointment oh we 2018 i think it was i've been on the waiting list about 18 months at the time so it's before the massive waiting list and i saw dr Lorimer. He's fantastic, and I remember him saying at the end of the end of the chat, he said, "Well, the, the horse has clearly bolted. There's no point in me standing in your way now. I'm happy to write you a prescription." So I got prescription for hormones on my first appointment to the GIC, yeah, which is kind of unheard of, really. Everyone, it's, always, it's two, three, four visits, but he recognised that I was in a place, a good place. I'd taken responsibility for my own life. I got on with it. So yeah. for me, the GIC was more of a rubber stamp. Yeah, it wasn't a gatekeeper for me. Yeah. But I know some people, they see it as the, the magic key to the next stage of their life, which is and why the frustrations it, exist. Yeah. It, it can be, sorry, just, just to say for anybody who doesn't know, the GIC stands for Gender Identity Clinic, doesn't it? Yeah. And people have different experiences. Some people wait a long time. Some people have a negative experience. Yeah. Uh, some people have fobbed off and they're told to come back in six months. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe maybe I was just trans enough at the right time. You know, I, I tick the box. You know, I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't. I didn't have a rocky road like many. Yeah, yeah. So if we sort of circle back to what you said, because you said you know everything in your life, you sort of thought, no, this isn't right. Apart from your family, and um, you know the red line almost was your family. But as somebody sort of married, living as a male, two children. Did it sort of worry you, you know, telling your family? Because often the thing that transgender people say when it's coming out to your family is, is, is actually the hardest thing to do because you risk being rejected. Rejection. 
Yeah, you do. Yeah, humiliated, rejected. My wife and I were going through some marital difficulties um, around our 25-year mark. The kids, our two children, were leaving home, going to university, we had a big four-bedroom house. We were living effectively in separate rooms. You know, my wife was spending time in the kitchen and I was spending time in my office and kids were spending time in their bedroom. And we were coming together with trays on our lap, if you like, in the living room, watching telly. Apart from the performative marriage sort of thing, it wasn't that we were unhappy. We just weren't really spending a lot of time to, together. And uh, we got to this point where, to cut a long story short, both I and my wife, we explored other options, should we put it that way, independently. We'd lost a bit of spark and it, it came to a, a head. And I call it our Olympic breakup because it was basically during the opening ceremony, the, the London 2012 Olympics, <laughs> we had a, a massive discussion. It lasted until the end of the Paralympics in the middle of September. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, so it was, we, the whole of the London 2012 Olympics, we were either at each other's throats, shouting and screaming at each other, or trying to reconcile in various various guises. I, I moved out for a while. I rented a flat. I was seeing somebody else briefly. During that reconciliation phase, I mean, you know you go through that five bottles of wine and, and then you start telling the truth and then you start yeah. shouting and screaming at each other and it just becomes unprotected. During one of those lucid moments, we were doing a show and tell sort of thing. You know, you tell me something I don't know and I'll tell you something you don't know something. It's almost like a way of attacking each other passively, aggressively. <laughs> I'm going to hurt you even more sort of thing. So she, she shared some things that she was getting up to with people. I think we were driving on the road at the time. So we're, we weren't looking at each other. So it's quite easy to have a conversation where you're not actually looking at somebody. Yeah. So I just said, oh, I'm, uh, I can't remember the phraseology I used, but I effectively, I think I said, I, I cross-dress, I wear women's clothes. I'm not sure about what's going on in my head. I've been doing it all our marriage before that. And it was kind of, I think my wife, I think we're sort of a few, is that all? <laughs> it, was, it, it was kind of a, on the scale of things, that we, you know, the big stuff she just dropped on the, on the, on the table. Mine was kind of like a distraction, you know. <laughs> so, oh, wow. yeah. Um, so yeah, so when we when we finally rectified at the closing ceremony of the Paralympics, I think it was, I moved back in. We, we agreed to sell the house, which is kind of like the, the the chain around our necks. We sold it and moved into a flat uh, on the waterside. So it was like our dream home. Mm-hmm. So we had a new, we, we were able to have a new future. So we got back together again. So when we agreed to re-establish our relationship from the point of destruction. It was rebuilt with this on the table. So it wasn't like it was a secret I reintroduced in a, in a time of stability. It was a, not a condition. It wasn't a condition of getting back together. It was it was in the deck. It was there. Yeah, this is me. Yeah. yeah. All of my indiscretions, all of Marie's indiscretions, all of the stuff that we weren't proud of. And it wasn't swept under the carpet. It was just acknowledged. Yeah. We don't need to talk about it. We, we, we've done the talking. We've done that. We've just said, we want to be together forever. Mm-hmm. Park it. Yeah. And so we explored a bit of cross-dressing fun together, more, more privately. I kind of, I think I kind of shared over the course of the next six months to a year how I needed to explore more of this. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I'm not sure Marie gave me permission as such. She, didn't, she wasn't going, yeah, this is a good idea. It was like she was willing to go along with what I needed to do. Mm-hmm. But I, I didn't have a destination. I didn't know if I wanted to transition. I didn't know if I... This was me. I had so many limiting beliefs going, you know, a person like me, I don't do this sort of stuff, you know, kind of. It got more and more serious than I did like many trans people did. I grew a beard. I tried to bury everything and said, 
I can I can fix myself. So I, in 2014, I grew this big. It's, it's a kind of a modern hipster beard, you know, the beard you see today. And I had a quite impressive beard. And uh, I remember thinking, yeah, I've cured myself. I'm, you can't look in the mirror with a beard and take yourself seriously with a wig on. So it just didn't work. So yeah. that lasted about four months. And I think I decided I cured myself. And I was okay. Mm-hmm. So I started packing all my shoes and wigs and makeup and dresses away. And as I did it, I thought, uh-uh, it's it back. Fit. Didn't fix it. So next day yeah. I shaved the beard off. And, <laughs> it's one uh, or the other. <laughs> and I said, no. And mm. from, so it's in the middle of 2014, I found some local trans support groups, uh, Beaumont Society, spin-off yeah. type things. And Marie drove me to a, uh, a local monthly trans meeting in, uh, in Portsmouth. And she mm-hmm. dropped me off at this pub, came in with me to make sure that it wasn't kind of a, a weird thing going on. So she mm-hmm. checked it out. It was okay. She saw that there was it was friendly, it was safe, and she said, "I'll see it, see you tonight when you get back." Yeah, I ended up having a great time meeting people, sharing stories, having conversations, getting out once or twice a month dressed. And I started. I, I met some people who we went on holidays in Blackpool to, together, so six or seven. So we'd have away weekends. And what, what happened was, I found in the early stages, there's a huge amount of anxiety going away for the weekend because you, you all this apprehension about will people like me will they hate me uh, all this nervousness what clothes am I going to wear what am I going to look like uh, my makeup will be a mess all the anxiety of going and what started happening was I had anxiety coming home mm-hmm. having to leave that life behind I realized that the anxiety of becoming me at the weekend disappeared completely and the anxiety of going back to the old me yeah. was, was, was worse and so I, I guess in 2016 it came to a head. I promised my wife in 2016 that I wouldn't tell our children until our son had, had finished his education. He graduated, we went to the ceremony. And a week later, I think we had another bit of a bottle of wine argument. I, I said, I, I, I can't keep lying to the kids. I can't, I can't keep lying. I, I've got to do something. I've got to, I'm going to tell the world. I'm going to tell the children first. So I, I drove to, to Shoreham, Brighton, to see my daughter. And she said, what's up, what's up? And I said, I need to have a chat. So we had a chat cried a bit, drove around a bit, had a, a chicken McNuggets drive-through, a chicken nugget drive-through and a milkshake, sat on the seafront of Brighton with the roof down, told her and drove back, told my son. Daughter was kind of teary, not sure, was okay. Son was kind of like, whatever, YOLO, get on with it, whatever. Yeah. And then a week later, oh, we got invited by Jackie on a Land Rover on the America's Cup, the uh, the big sailing thing going on in the in the Solent at near Portsmouth. Mm-hmm. And we had corporate hospitality and we you know we we were drinking Prosecco or champagne for the moment we arrived at ten o'clock in the morning all the way through the day. Our glasses were never empty. We were absolutely absolutely drunk. Mm-hmm. And oh yeah, again we probably had another argument, a drunken argument. And I and I I sat there, I remember sitting there at Port Solent on a chair at midnight on my own on Facebook, just putting a message sort of to the world, I'm trans, get over it, something. I can't remember exactly what I wrote. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then came home, passed out, woke up next day and thought, oh, I've got this sneaky feeling something happened last night. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and wake up Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. Yeah. And you go, oh, yeah, 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 that's kind of what I remembered. And the mistake I made was to delete the post without reading or checking who'd liked it or who commented. Oh, wow. 
So I had absolutely no idea who'd seen it, you know. Yeah. So I started phoning around everybody I knew. So my brother first. I went, did you see it? He went, I see what? And I went, okay, you haven't seen it. This is this is the situation that I am. I'm yeah. trans. And I just worked my way around all my friends list, everybody could anyone could think of, and just went and just owned it. Mm-hmm. And that was the beginning. And this part of the story I thought was the end or the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning, whichever you want to look at it. What I realized was that moment where I told the world, it changed not only my life, but my wife's life, my my children's lives forever. Mm. And I didn't I didn't appreciate, and I'm going to use the word selfish, but I don't mean selfish in a negative way, but in a dictionary definition, I did it for me only. I didn't do it for anybody else. I did it mm-hmm. for me. So it's my own decision to, for me. I didn't realize what impact that selfish decision would have on those around me. And I look back six, seven years now, and I realized that transitioning for me was almost like pivoting on a spot. Mm-hmm. Transitioning for everybody else was like going this massive great arc around me. Yeah. Uh, further to travel, more confusion, more, more struggles. Yes, I was going through my own battle, my own demons, but everybody had their own their own journey. So I always think that transitioning is more about the close people around you. It is about you yourself. It's going into this vortex. I call it a vortex. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 you open the door, you go in, and, and you, your life is all over the place. You don't know what's up, what's down, your brain's everywhere. And, and the mission is to try and get out the other side without damaging yourself. Mm. or bottling it and going back the way you came in. Yeah. It was, I was really focused on trying to come out the other side intact mm. with my family, with my relationships. And that was my priority. I, I realized that I had to, I had to work at what we had mm. to create new or to, to, to build something the next. Yeah. Um, and that, and that, that was kind of like the a real epiphany I had. And I, I remember laying in bed and I said, I've just wrestled with the fact that you said you, you were going to tell me that you were a trans man. You would take testosterone, you'd grow a beard, you'd develop stubble, you'd, uh, you'd smell uh, that manly, manly odour. And I, I said, I'm just trying to rationalise how I would feel if you transitioned. And I said, I would struggle, even knowing everything I know now, I would really struggle to accept you transitioning to be a man. And at that moment there, in my head, I had this epiphany, I go, that's how difficult it is for her yeah. and my children to accept me yeah. because you can be as open-minded and as warm and generous as you can be, but it's a big ask. It's a really big ask. Yeah, It shouldn't be. I'm not saying it should or shouldn't be, hmm. but it is a massive ask to ask someone to, to embrace you just like that. I, th- I think it's because you've seen someone the same way for so many years. Yeah. And sometimes I talk with other parents and – and it seems to me that parents with younger children sometimes, you know, if children are coming out in their early sort of primary school years, it's a, it's a diff- it's different. But you know, for them, it's almost like they haven't had those years of imagining someone to be what they think they are, yeah. because that was the shift I had to make. I had to make this shift in seeing that my daughters actually weren't my sons, and I'd seen them as sons, I'd seen them as men, and and so just yeah. you know having to like in a sense change gear, I found that really sort of challenging mm. i think um so yeah i think that's that's a good description um because i i think it's it's all about letting go of your own 
thoughts about that person, you know, what you thought they were in a sense and and just recalibrating it. But I think, as my friend said, which I've used in my, in in the previous series, she said, if you can just see it, it's like they're a book with a cover and it's the cover that's changed. And I do think that's very true actually, because what I discovered over time, of course, my kids were exactly the same people. Yeah. Their personalities didn't change. I just I often described it as a rebrand, you know, like mm. Sif and Jif and Opal Fruits and and Starburst and yeah. I used to have the joke that I, I I was Marathon now I'm Snickers, yeah, um, still sweet and still got nuts. It's yeah, kind of, that's that's kind of I used to have that joke and it's yeah, because um, it was it really for me I was still the same person but when I look at when I look through my glasses at the screen I still see the same person. Yeah, I still have I'm still still me but other people see me differently. Yeah, and. If I show Marie a picture, or if I, you know, I've got time up and Facebook memories on my phone, things like that, and often something will pop up from 10, 15 years ago, and I'll look at it and go, wow, that was me, mm. wasn't it? That, that looks a lot. I now look at it and think, oh, that, that's my dad or my brother. Yeah. I don't see me in it anymore. Yeah, that's interesting. But, yeah. But if I show it to Marie, Marie goes, oh, I don't want to see that. I don't want to see I don't she, she, Marie is more worried about seeing an old picture of me than I am. Mm. I think because. In the early stages, I was wearing wigs. I was wearing lots of makeup. I was physically trying to look different in order to comply with societal rules. So since I've had my hair transplant, and I've obviously been living as as as, as myself for seven or eight years now, what I see in the mirror aligns with who I am. Mm-hmm. This is Joanne. This is who I am. I'm female. People yeah. accept me as who I am. So when I look at old photographs, I just see an older version of me or a younger version of me. I don't mm. see somebody else anymore because mm. I'm so comfortable with myself and my own identity of how I look. I, I'm happy with how I look and I actually don't care whether you're happy with how I look or not. Mm-hmm. It's about how, how I feel about myself yeah. and I feel comfortable in my own skin. Mm-hmm. So I'm not, I'm no longer going through that early stage transition where I'm hyper aware of passing or worrying or what people are going to say or mm-hmm. if they're going to notice me or uh, now I just, it's fine. I mean, I, I want to wear jeans and t-shirt. I, I get mated or misgendered. You know, whatever. Yeah. Because um, you're sort of like yeah. comfortable within yourself, so you don't need yeah. the approbation or whatever of anybody else. You can just no, be yourself. It's funny sometimes at weekends. You know, we're going. Marie and I get maybe going out shopping or going downtown or going to the cinema or something. And she'll look at me and say, "Can you put a bit of makeup or tie yourself up a bit?" I said, "I just feel like a slob day." She said, "No, that's good." I want to be proud of you. Go, go and dress yourself up a bit. I go, all right. So I nip off, come back downstairs with a dress or a, yeah. a nice top or something. And I come down, she goes, oh, that's better. I'm proud of you now. I fancy you rotten now. So <laughs> she wants me to look good as well. And yeah. I, I, I make the effort for her and for us yeah. rather than anybody else. That's interesting as well. So there's still that mutual attraction as well between you two. So that hasn't changed. Yeah, she, she ticked bisexual on the, on the census yeah. um, and she identifies as kind of a, a nouveau queer woman sort of thing because yeah. she has embraced a side of her own sexual attraction that maybe she didn't know she had or didn't admit she had, but she's mm. not shocked or saddened by my physical appearance. You know, mm. In fact, we joke about, I've got the small boobs, she's got the big boobs and sort of things. She's completely comfortable in a sort of, in a naked sexual orientation sort of way with my mm. identity as well. So if we sort of circle back a bit, it wasn't all plain sailing with your family, was it, with your daughter? Oh, no, 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 not at all. I think it sounded easy. No, it wasn't. No. My daughter effectively 
rejected me completely, you know, sort of dead to me type stuff. Wrote me a letter mm. saying, never ever talk to me again. Don't put your name on a Christmas card. I don't want any presents from you. I don't want to hear from you. I don't want to do anything. Basically, and you're not coming to my wedding. That must have been. And that was tough for Marie. Devastating. Put Marie right in the middle. Yeah. Yeah, put, put Marie in the middle. I mean, obviously, I was devastated. We had a, two Christmases where we had to spend them apart. So Marie would go see our daughter on Christmas Day. Then we come back on Boxing Day with my son and so my son was okay, well, okay-ish. So it, it created this, this division in the family. And I say, I was, uh, on the original planned wedding day, I was uninvited or not, like it wasn't uninvited, just wasn't invited at all yeah. and barred. Um, COVID hit, uh, the wedding got cancelled and it got deferred by a, a year or so, a year and a bit. And during that time, we managed to have a reconciliation. So my daughter was going through a, a tricky patch with her fiancé at the time. And... It culminated in a situation where she needed her dad more than she needed to be upset with me. Mm-hmm. So we had a conversation. Yes, yeah. we had a couple of tough conversations. Yeah, we had a couple of drives. We had a couple of drives through chicken nuggets and milkshakes on the, on the front again to have a chat. Um, yeah, for Christmas, I asked her if uh, she said, what do you want for Christmas? And so I sent her a link to an Amazon set, a set of hoop earrings, which I fancy. And she said, I can't buy you earrings. But then there's plenty of other stuff that she'll buy me or we'll go out together or we'll joke about stuff. Um, her birthday, we went to the Ivy in, in Brighton. I needed the loo and she needed the loo. And I was thinking, she's going to really freak out if I go to the loo with her, isn't she? And she didn't. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever been to the, the Ivy in Brighton in the lanes there, but it's got one of these really amazing women's toilets you know one of the ones with it's all decorated and there's big seats in the middle and makeup areas yeah and it's like a real boudoir yeah so we're in there we're in there taking photographs of each other with the chairs and the little makeup seats and you think she's yet she's worried about buying me earrings yet we were in the ladies toilets together yeah larking around yeah and and i'd have thought that was a bigger red line for her sitting next sharing sharing a cubicle next to adjacent cubicles so it, it's some things are easy for her, yeah. some things aren't. And yeah. she works. She works in early years. She works with preschool children. So a lot of the children she works with, their par- either their parents identify as non-binary or, mm-hmm. or trans or something, mm-hmm. or even some of the children she looks after yeah. identify as as trans non-binary, or some of the other 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 uh, uh, people who work there are. So she's not she's not trans negative. She's just mm. confused by dad. <laughs> and that's that's kind of so she she misgenders me she gets the pronouns wrong yeah and she's the only person in the world that i i don't allow it as such i just i, I just think our relationship is better by not having that as an issue between us yeah. and it, it it bothers me not bothers me it's kind of it's still it's still go oh, oh, she's done it again mm-hmm. but i don't let it affect our relationship because I, if i sit there and go she she yeah. and get made a big deal of it it would just get awkward. And I, yeah. I can't be bothered. I don't need it to be awkward. And yeah. and she still calls me dad because I'm still her dad. I don't. Yeah. I don't. I'm not bothered by being dad. It's a, bit, yeah. it's a bit comical sometimes when we're in this in the supermarket. She shouts, "Oh, you're dad!" Okay. <laughs> <laughs> she just goes, "You're my dad. I'm going to call you my dad." It's like, oh, all right. it's all right. Go for it then. Yeah. So we've got our own little our way of communicating and it's fine i'm determined that their child doesn't address me with male pronouns or call me by a male name yeah but that's that's a, 
a conversation she knows we're going to have to have at some point. Yeah. And she knows I want to have it. And she's not sure how she's going to have it either. So we've kicked that one to the long grass. We'll see yeah. what happens with that one. <laughs> I suppose, you know, the thing that's coming across in, in terms of what you're telling me is just how it's just this total, almost total honesty. And that that's, that's what helped you and Marie, wasn't it? It was just this process mm. of being completely honest with each other. And Open again, dialogue, talking. Yeah. yeah. Recognising that we both have concerns. We've both got our own identity. We've got both got our own things that make us happy, make us sad. And it's, it is, it's that ultimate respect that I don't have to be right. You don't have to be right. We just have to find a way of living together with it mm. to make it work for us both. Yeah. Yeah. So for the sake of pure curiosity, and I think probably because some parents who are listening to this might be really interested. You talked about when you first went on hormones and this big yeah. rush of estrogen and then testosterone was suppressed as well. Did you get very emotional? Is it this sort of like the the ups and downs that we associate with, you know, the menstrual cycle? Was it that sort of thing? Um, or what was no, it? it's it's not I don't think it's a cycle it's not a cycle because it's it's very stable, very flat. Mm. You're getting you're getting a, effectively a, a, a constant delivery. Mm-hmm. So my I think my last time I had my testosterone levels measured, it was about 0.2. And I think that's actually quite low. Most mm-hmm. most women tend to have theirs around one or just below one. Yeah. So point point two is is negligible. My estrogen levels are about the six seven hundred mark, which is kind of like typically a thirty or forty year old non pregnant woman type mm-hmm. thing. The rush of emotions at the early stages were yeah they were quite a shock. You, know, you, mm-hmm. you do burst into tears mm-hmm. without control. You, know, you can see a movie, watch a telly. Or, or something just catches you, you're blubbering, you, you can't stop it. Even now, I'm still much more in touch with my emotional side. Yeah. Everything kind of drags me in. I feel it here. I, I, I feel lots more, not just mm. not just in the, the tears in the eyes, but I feel it. Mm. I emotionally connect mm. with people, with situations. And I, I'm empathetic by default, if you like. I understand the impact of testosterone, how... It really is a a very powerful hormone in what it does to your brain. It, the aggression, the way you see the world, the way you have to sort of fight for your your, your place in the world. And once you take testosterone away, you, you realize that all these ways of re, you've reacted in the past, all these ways you've done things, you take the testosterone away and it completely changes your outlook on life. And I'm not making excuses for toxic masculinity or bad men, but you can understand that if you haven't got control of your your brain with some of these hormones, it can be really, really hard to to, to sort of separate that. So you, it, it, as I, I'm not making excuses for anybody, but testosterone, not having testosterone has made a huge difference to my ability to be calm, empathetic, relaxed, see the beauty in the world, um, more of a collaborative, cooperative person. Even my daughter, she says, I'm, I'm a much nicer person now. I don't think I've changed. I've just, I've just had this program removed at my head. You know, you think about the the rogue robot, and you have to reprogram it. I, I think I've had this rogue program in my head mm. controlling me, and I've been mm. fighting against it all my life. Yeah. And now that bit of program has been taken away, and, and that really is the estrogen testosterone balance. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not, I'm not playing at being me. I've now uncovered the real me who's mm. under there all the time, but being yeah. suppressed and. Yeah. So, Joe, you talked about your family a little bit. What about, you know, the other people you were telling 
that, that day you had to um, retract on the Facebook post. So how, how did you find your friendships went? Yeah, I ran my own business. My two business partners were men. Most of my customers were is male-led organisations. They were small businesses. Uh, I really couldn't face coming out at work, so I, I bottled it until after I sold my business and transitioned. But I was also the national president of the Round Table and been in the Round Table for 20-odd years of my life. And Round Table was a men's club, mm-hmm. uh, unashamedly, and I still support its right to, to be single sex, single gender. When I was national president in 2008, 2009, there were, I think, like 10,000 members. So I was travelling around the country, doing black tie dinners. And I had a huge network of, of male people in my life mm. across the world. And it was a real a real struggle because, you know, you can't control what people think or say about you. I, I knew there was lots of tittering and, and joking and, and probably casual homophobia and transphobia going on behind my back. But I found it really awkward because because I, I wanted to go to this this dinner, and I got told I couldn't because it was a it was a it was a stag do and I couldn't go as a woman. Mm. If I was dressed as a woman, I couldn't go. And I said, "Well, you invited me last year. Yes, but you, you told us you were a man last year. This year you're telling us you're a woman. You can't come." Mm. And I was having a chat with my friend, and he, he said, uh, "We well, can't have your cake and eat it. You know, you have to pick a side." <laughs> it's like I went, "Yeah, okay, I, I get it." And then then I actually sat down and reflected and thought. Yeah, all the years that I dragged Marie along to events where she was either the only woman or a minority of women, the women were there to hang on to their husbands sort of thing. I thought, why do I want to sit in, in, a, in a room with 10 drunk men talking about football and cricket and rugby, which I used to find boring anyway. So yeah. at one point I felt I was being rejected by them. And then I realised that I was rejecting them because I didn't actually want to be in that environment. Mm. And I find it, I, I'm now kind of through a lot of that. I still get invited back to these things, anniversary dinners and these something. And I, I go into that and I come out just feeling exhausted by the, the, the male company and the, the male attitudes and the male view of the world. And I just find it completely exhausting and give me a room full of women any day. And I, mm. I appreciate not not every not every room full of women is, is also can also be a bit testy, but but give me female company any day because it, it I just find the conversation so much more relaxing, so much more collaborative, and so much more exciting to talk about makeup and shoes than yeah. uh, than football and drinking. And it's yeah. Um, but yeah, I had a few friends who who kind of walked away, some old school friends, and I was a bit disappointed because yeah, they, they work for big companies, and I thought yeah, they're EDI policies, and I just. Their, their wives just sort of said to Marie, oh, yeah, they're really not interested in meeting Joe again, ever sort of thing. And one of the, one of the, one of the, my friend's mums, who we used to send Christmas cards to, go around there occasionally, got the message that she didn't want to see me either. It's like, so I, I got cut off from a few people. Yeah. Uh, but the majority of people were either kind of whatever mm-hmm. or fine. You don't hang on to everybody. Mm. And... I found that I've, I've I've developed new friendships in my new life, but those conversations are far less exhausting mm. because when I'm meeting people who've known me before for a long time, you have you, you just kind of feel that there's a a complication in that in that relationship for them and for me, and it, mm. it's, sometimes it's just exhausting and it's hard to relax. Whereas people only know me as Joanne, it's just an easier life. I don't. Mm. I don't have to explain myself. I don't have to. Don't have to look them in the eye and say, "Do you remember that time we were, we were in? 
uh, in Tallinn in Estonia having a, a stag weekend. Do you remember all those all that fun we had in those, those bars? Yeah, yeah. It's, I don't want to. Talk, I don't want to have these conversations. You know, it's just. Mm. Uh, and they misgender me more often than not. And it's as I say, it's. I just find those conversations really, really, really hard. I caught one of my friends. I think it was a couple of months ago. I was at this dinner, and I caught one of my friends at the corner of my eye just just looking at me. And I was trying to work out what was going through his head. Where he was mm. going, it was almost like they were kind of resting in their brain what they were looking at and what yeah. they were listening to. And I think one of my friends described it that it's not that we're not friends, but that friendship is as parked. Yeah, you know, they don't have memories of with me as Joanne. They have memories of me as I was before. Yeah. And most times when you get together in a group, you end up reminiscing, don't you? You reminisce mm-hmm. about the old times. Yeah. And it's awkward for everybody to reminisce about the old times with me. Yeah, and we've never put the investment in just to create new memories. Yeah, but why would we? Because they want to go off and do man stuff, and yeah. I don't. And you don't, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I appreciate that sounds a bit social construct and a bit I could do if I wanted to, but I don't want to. No. It's not. It's not. It's not playing the woman. It's not saying yeah. I, I can't because I'm a woman. Yeah. It's like I really just don't, don't want, want to. to. Yeah. No. Yeah. And yeah, I'm sure you. If, you, if someone says to you, do you want to go and do that? You go, actually, go into that room. It's going to be boring. I really don't want to go. And I'm old enough and ugly enough now to sort of say, I don't want to do that. No, yeah. thank you. Bye. Yeah. I still sometimes reflect and go, could I have been happy as I was? Yeah. And obviously I don't know because I haven't got a control group. I haven't got a parallel me to see yeah. how that other person would have turned out. So I don't, yeah. I don't know. But I think about all the times where I was wrestling with my cross-dressing or the pressure or the, that that th- the, the stuff that's going through my head, the mush and all the thoughts that are going on. And I, I just, I sit there now and I got, I've got no other little voice in my head. I was walking through Manchester yesterday thinking, so I was joking to my friend, I got, I got to the hotel you know, seven years ago, we used to go to Manchester together. I said, the first thing we used to do was put our bras on, put our wigs on, put our boobs in, get our makeup on and go and hit town. Yeah. Tonight, the first thing I did was take my bra off, take my shoes off, <laughs> take my makeup off, plonk onto bed and, and put the telly on. And I, not, I wasn't interested in going out at all. And it, yeah. Okay, some of that's an age thing, but also some of it's a kind of, I'm just completely comfortable With being me. Yeah. yeah. And it's and it's an amazing feeling yeah. to have that, just that calmness, one voice. And whatever happened seven years ago when I transitioned to taking a hormone, whatever happened, could I have got rid of my feminine voice? I don't think so. But I know that the masculine voice has no room anymore. It's yeah. not welcome. With all of the stuff that's going on in the world, you know, we've seen this stuff in, in Florida at the moment, the, the attacks on trans people, the people who are gender critical have these views, our government the political football, the mainstream media, everything we see at the moment is going on. I, I just see more love in the in the world. More people embrace me than mm-hmm. and criticise me. Yeah, we're, we're pandering to a, a vocal minority. And yes, there's, there's things to talk about, sport and violence against women and girls and safety. And yes, I know we need to resolve all that. And it's not trans women that are the problem. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's predatory men, it's dangerous men. Yes, we've got to solve those problems. I often think that, what we do today is not for me. It's not even for my children. It's it's hopefully for our children's children or children's children's children. Mm. It's a generational thing. And yeah. I, I, I just hope 
the direction of travel that in 21, 23, this will just be a bad memory, as will be racism and anti-Semitism and homophobia, Yeah, that we as a society will evolve further. I take hope from Gen Zs, Gen Alphas, who are more liberal, more open about their identities. I'd like to think that you know, we're going to, in the next 30, 40 years, we will start seeing a shift as the uh, as we get more accepting of uh, yeah, non-binary identities, certainly. Yeah, yeah. Where gender does, where gender becomes less important. It's brilliant, Joe. Thanks so much. It's it's just so um, interesting to hear sort of what you've got to say, and I think it's also part of the reason I wanted to do this particular series to hear from transgender people is 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 to hear their stories and to hear how they've transitioned, um, and I, I just think it's it's so helpful to know that you've reached this place where you're feeling so secure in yourself and mm. you're okay being you. You don't have to dress up or it's just, this is who you are. And I, I just think that's really encouraging for those of us that are parents to hear that so that we can believe that for our kids as well. So thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And finally, um, where can people find you? <laughs> if you're in business, you're on LinkedIn, linkedin.com forward slash IN forward slash Joe Lockwood. See change happen, S-E-E change happen.co.uk. Or if you Google my name, I'm fairly prolific over the first five or six pages of Google. So you should be able to find me there. For those of us who have never questioned our gender, it's hard to imagine what it must be like to experience that part of yourself that is insistently telling you that something's not right. I imagine that until it's resolved, it's something like tinnitus, a sound that won't go away, that you're always aware of, that constantly distracts you from the task at hand. And I know, for at least one of my daughters, that coming out has brought with it a deeper sense of calm and the ability to relax. The tension of fighting herself has gone. I find it truly heartening to hear Jo talk of how she doesn't have to dress up or pretend. She truly is a woman. Over time, as a mother of transgender daughters, I've come to understand what it is to be a woman in a totally different way. When my kids first came out, I was still very much wedded to the idea that they were male because of the outward signs of their sex. I found it hard to accept that they'd always been female. To me, it seemed like an uncomfortable choice that they were making to be transgender. However, now I can say that I see them as women. This isn't because they pass as women. There's still a way to go in terms of them passing, if it ever happens at all. And actually, passing is not important. Passing implies an expression of femininity that is rooted in old-fashioned ideas about male and female roles. No, I see them as women because I understand that is truly who they are. Who knows what happened to give them male bodies when that's not who they are inside? To me, as a mother... What I long for is a society that is prepared to listen to and accept the variety of the human experience that gives us transgender people. Transgender people are challenging us as a society to examine at a deeper level the way we understand men and women. Why do we call transgender women men in frocks and yet criticise transgender women for not looking feminine? 
why do we disregard non-binary people and transgender men because they were assigned female at birth? Why do we insist that transgender people follow binary norms that we don't apply to cisgender people? Yes, I'm someone who likes wearing dresses, but I don't call them frocks. I'm with Joe. I believe that younger generations are much more opening to questioning the gender binary. And ultimately, I believe that will play out towards a much more accepting society. That's what I hope for. And that's why I wanted to give transgender people the space to speak in this second series of Gloriously Unready. Because perhaps as a society, we're unready, but we can embrace the change and all that it teaches us about love, difference and acceptance.